This podcast is brought to you by Dinglemount Church. It will open up God's Word to you, inspire you to love God, and grow in the knowledge of Him, and challenge you to live a victorious Christian life. Be blessed as you listen. such a long time since I was with you probably before you were here okay I believe isn't it so more than five years my how time flies if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10 I'm going to read just the first verse of chapter 10 and then move down to verse 8 Romans chapter 10 verse 1 my brothers My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Then over to verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, give us eyes for no one except Jesus. Give us ears just to listen to him. And Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make us not hearers of the word only. Make us doers of it. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. So, Oki, you've asked me to come and speak on the the subject of evangelism. Now, any of you that know my preaching style, my particular preaching preference is uh, what would be called expository preaching. So I prefer to take a book and preach through it. Uh, I'm not good at thematic or subject preaching. But, uh, having been asked to come, uh, and certainly in light of the blessings that the Lord has has showered down upon us at Northwood in the matter of evangelism, I felt I should at least come and give it a go. So if I seem a little ill at ease uh, with this particular way of of sharing, uh, please bear with me. But I'm going to deal with just three topics very briefly, or three parts of the same topic. Namely, what is evangelism? Secondly, why should we bother evangelizing? And thirdly, what might evangelism look like? Okay? Straightforward. We'll be keeping it simple. Don't want to uh, put anybody to sleep tonight. First of all then, what is evangelism? Now, if I were doing my expository preaching thing, I'd go to my concordance, I'd look up the word evangelism, and I'd see which scriptures it appeared in, and I'd use scripture to shine light on scripture, and from that I'd be able to tell you what the Bible has to say about evangelism. However, 
Therein lay the first problem. The word evangelism does not appear in scripture. Oh dear. However, not to panic, although the word evangelism is not there, there is actually the word evangelist. Philip, in Acts 2 at 21.8, is referred to as an evangelist. And timid Timothy, uh, the, the unwilling pastor, uh, he is commanded by Paul in 2 Timothy 4 verse 5 to do the work of an evangelist. So the evangelist word is there and I can pick that apart using my limited languaging skills and it means simply this, one who preaches the good news or one who preaches the gospel. And so we can get into some clearer territory now about what this matter of evangelism is. Because if it's one who preaches the gospel, then the gospel, scripture tells us in Romans 1.16, is the power of God unto salvation. So the gospel is that which God has ordained as the means by which sinful men and women, boys and girls, escape from the judgment that they rightly deserve by hearing and believing that the Lord Jesus Christ has become the substitute for them. That he hung upon the cross and was punished by the holy, eternal, almighty God in their place. And that those who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, not trusting in themselves, but trusting in him and that work that he did on the cross, they will be forgiven. They will escape from the punishment to come. They will be Saved. The gospel tells me that though I'm a sinner, rightly condemned to death by the law of holy righteous God, I have been given a pardon and I have been reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And the gospel has the power to make a dead thing come alive. The gospel has the power to transform a thief into a generous generous charitable giver. Who can give me an example from scripture of just such a one? Anybody think of one? A thief who becomes a charity giver, restores fourfold everything that he's taken? Zacchaeus, that's right. It also has the power to turn a murderer into a brother. Who might that be? Paul, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're with me tonight. I might ask you a question too as we go along, just to check that you're still listening. But evangelism is life lived in the power of the gospel. It's a life that is shaped in thought and attitude and action by my desire to see as many people as possible exposed to that same gospel that I've been exposed to. Evangelism is about recognising that there is an endless procession of sinners marching towards the edge of a cliff and when they fall over it they are lost in hell forever evangelism is standing in the way of them shouting words of warning but also living a life which compels people to listen to me and turn around and head in the opposite direction and the biblical word for that of course is to repent so evangelism is about seeing souls turned away from hell to the saviour now when you think about evangelism in those terms rather than perhaps evangelism as 
well, something that the church does from time to time in order to, to boost the numbers and make sure we don't dwindle to the point of uh, insustainability. Uh, when we stop thinking about evangelism as that thing we'll try and get out of, if at all possible, or evangelism as, well, we'll make that the pastor's job because we're paying him. When we start thinking about it in the first person as the responsibility that God has given me to save souls from hell, then we begin to understand what evangelism is. And it starts to bring us and start answering the second question that we had. Why evangelize? Well, as I've just explained, the the need for evangelism is turning sinners away from hell to the Saviour. And and hopefully, that in itself should be enough of an answer. You see, church isn't a a holy club uh, designed as a place for Christians to hang out with similarly minded people until we get our upward call to glory. Church actually is the megaphone through which God warns sinners to turn away from the danger that lies ahead of them. But it's not only urgency from the point of view of the sinner. There are other good reasons why we should evangelise. Acts 4, 8, 13 says this, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be made known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marvelled, and they realised that they'd been with Jesus. That message that Peter and his disciples, sorry, Peter and the other disciples preached, was matched by something remarkable and desirable and unquestionable. It was matched by a transformed life. When the religious authorities looked on at Peter and John, uneducated, untrained men, but when they they saw the passion with which they spoke and the weight of the arguments that they brought, one thing was obvious. Peter and John were not the men they had been before they met Jesus. They were very different people. They were transformed. And the message of new life in Christ they proclaimed, well, they were already living it right in front of those who they were preaching it to. So preaching the gospel actually confirms the inward transformation that comes from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. In that passage that I just read to you from Romans 10, have you ever wondered why there's this emphasis on the need to confess Jesus with our mouths as an essential evidence of salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, in verse 9 and then in verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now if you know any of your scriptures, and I'm sure you will do uh, here, you probably know that in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, The scripture makes it clear that we do not earn our salvation. We don't work for it in any way whatsoever. It is a free gift given to us by God's grace. So what is happening here? Have we got a contradiction here that's telling us somehow we're, we're earning or contributing to our salvation by speaking of it? No, not at all. What we're doing here, what we're seeing here is that the 
preaching of the gospel confirms that a person is truly saved and not just a religious hypocrite. The desire to share the Lord Jesus Christ with souls who are going to hell is actually a clear evidence that we are truly saved, that we are born again by God's Holy Spirit. If you claim to love the Lord Jesus, but in actual fact are fairly indifferent about the fate of souls of others, then I'm sorry to say it in these terms, but there has to be a question mark over the authenticity of your salvation. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to mark you down uh, as second class or second rate as Christian if you're not gifted as an evangelist, if you're not outgoing and passionate as some are. What I'm talking about is your attitude to the destiny of those around you. Can you stand the thought of your, depending where you are in the age ladder, your mum, your dad, my parents are elderly and unbelievers, your son, your daughter, your neighbour, your workmate, your best friend, your worst enemy. Can you stand the thought of them heading to hell? No true believer should be able to stomach the thought of a single soul heading to hell. And no true believer should miss an opportunity to invite that soul to flee from the judgment to come. Our passion, our desire, our prayers, our actions, our energies should be hugely consumed by the desire to see souls saved. And I'm not talking about just in that abstract sense, God, please save all the people in China. I'm talking about a here and now imperative, a a, a desire for people who I know, who I see, who I talk to, to get to know the Saviour. And if that means I've got to inconvenience myself and invest time heavily in, in people and places and things that I might not naturally be interested in, I'll do it because I want them to flee from the judgment to come. I want them to have the opportunity to hear the gospel and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want them to get to know me so well that they realise I'm not just a church-going version of them, I'm a new creature in Christ. I want them to know me well enough to appreciate that I'm not saying I'm morally superior, but I'm a new creature. I'm transformed by what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And preaching the gospel is a verbal expression of that inner transformation that Jesus is continuing to work in us through the Holy Spirit. And we should, if we get it, if we understand what evangelism really is, we should find it nearly impossible to stop ourselves telling others about Jesus. But there's a third reason why we should evangelise too, and this is perhaps the easiest one. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, Jesus came and spoke to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. And again, Acts 1, verses 6 to 8, Therefore, when they'd come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the end of the earth, even as far as Dingle. I did add a word or two on that myself, actually. But hopefully you knew the bit at which it was me speaking. 
<clears throat> don't make any mistake about this. Jesus did not invite his disciples to go and share the gospel around the planet. He commanded it. He made it their number one priority as if it was the only reason they were being left behind for a time. And so it is. Since we've agreed that we don't do anything to earn or deserve our salvation, then theoretically you might say, well, why don't we just vanish the instant that we come to know the Lord? Why aren't we caught up to be with him the second that we come to true saving faith? We don't do it. We remain on earth. And why do we remain? To fulfill his commandment. Now, if we'd more time, and time is just racing away, we might have a little debate about why we've been given the job and not angels. I'm going to skip that part of my text, but basically, angels can't show you what a new creature in Christ looks like. We can talk to me about that. Do I have a cup of tea afterwards? We can talk about that over a cup of tea afterwards if you'd like. But anyway, whatever, we have been tasked. It's not been given to angels. It's a privilege that's been placed into our hands, commanded to us to deliver this gospel because we can show somebody what it means to be truly born again. What it means to be transformed by the Holy Spirit working in us. Which then brings me to my my third and final question, and this is the bit where things get quite exciting, I think. What does evangelism look like? Well, you could do a survey across the scriptures, and you'd find evangelism in all kinds of shapes and forms. Perhaps one of my favourite forms is that of Jonah, and if you get a chance to read the book of Jonah, I recommend it to you. If you don't want to read the whole book, Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. It's a stunning reminder that the power of the gospel lies in the message... Not in our willingness or ability or gifting in delivering. Jonah stomps about that city, shouting reluctantly, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Where's the power of the gospel in that message? The power is it's the message he was sent by God to deliver, and the whole city repents. Evangelism comes in all sorts of shapes and forms in scripture. You can see it actually in the house of God, happening in Acts chapter 3. It was culturally right at that time for a religious community to witness in the house of God. Do we still live in that kind of community today? Is this place the best place to witness? I can't answer that question for you. Only you can answer that question. What about evangelism in the open air? At Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, Paul preaches in the open air and at the marketplace in keeping with the culture and place of the time. There he finds willing listeners, and it was perfectly normal to start up a public debate or lecture in that time and that place. Is there an equivalent today? Well, there is, and we're going to get to it. But we're going to get to it from one more text of Scripture. If you have your Bible, could you turn to Acts chapter 17? And from this text, we're going to see how preaching the gospel involves bouncy castles and burgers. Yeah, Acts 17. I haven't got time for the whole passage, I'm afraid. So we'll pick up from verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw a city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus 
and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live by temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine is uh, like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Oropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This passage, above all others, is the one that persuaded the Lord to or the Lord used to encourage us to, to preach the gospel in Kirby Town Centre with burgers and bouncy castles. And you might think, how do you get to burgers and bouncy castles from the Oropagus? Well, let's just unfold the passage. Let's see what it actually has to say. Just, just uh, open it up a little for a better understanding. Paul ends up in Athens with a few days on his hands. Silas and Timothy are back in Berea. You might, if you remember his missionary journey, they've been in Thessalonica. It all kicked off, got very bad there. The Thessalonians were not good at all. So they, 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 they came away, ended up in Berea. The Bereans were much more fair-minded. They, they weighed up these strange, earth-shattering truths that Paul was speaking to them against Scripture. And, and wouldn't you know it, they found them to be true. So they were much more noble-minded. But then the Thessalonican troublemakers turned up. And Paul, for his own safety, they got him out of town quickly um, and sent him off to Athens whilst um, the other two waited behind um, and, and finished up the work. There were still opportunities there. So Silas and Timothy were going to be a few more days in Berea. So Paul is in Athens with a few days to kill. Now, if I'd been Paul, I'd have probably caught up on my sleep or something like that. That's not Paul's nature and character at all, though. He takes time to go out and have a look round. Uh, and he is overwhelmed by the vast number of idols in this city. In fact, there's, there's a word in scripture here, in chapter six, verse 16, it says, the city was full of idols. Remember, Acts is written by Dr. Luke, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompted Dr. Luke to create a brand new word there. The word didn't exist. There was no word to describe how idolatrous Athens was. And so Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes this town as cat idolatrous. 
as in the most idolatrous place a place could ever be. That's how idolatrous this place is. So Paul goes around, he looks, he observes, he understands the city. He must have been overwhelmed and shocked and appalled at some of the things that he saw. But he talks to people too because he, he can't do anything but. So, so in the synagogue, he shares the gospel with the Jews. In the marketplace, he shares the gospel with devout persons as they're described here. He, he would still takes those opportunities. And in amongst the crowds, there are the, uh, the philosophers of the day, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. I don't want to bore you with the, the, the nitty-gritty of what they believed, so we won't bother about them. But basically, they lived for one thing above all else, the debate. They loved to hear something new that they could argue about and fall out about, critique, pull apart, disagree on, all those things. That's what they lived for. So when this uh, peculiar uh, Roman citizen turns up amongst them preaching about these two gods, Jesus and the resurrection, that's how they understood him to be preaching, they were intrigued. And so they gave him a unique opportunity. They gave him the opportunity to take the, the forum or, the, or the, the pedestal at the Oropagus, the seat of justice on Mars Hill, and tell them about Jesus and the resurrection. So I want to put it to you. In Paul's place, what would you have done with that opportunity? I don't know about you, but I'd have been packing my double-barrel shotgun of truth as full as I could get it. I'd have climbed up into that pulpit and I'd have blasted away with them, this bunch of idolaters. You wicked idolaters, worshipping the works of men's hands. What do you think you're doing? That would have been my approach. But Paul has a very different approach, doesn't he? And it makes me smile, it rejoices my heart to see the depth of wisdom that he displays as one under the control of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Eurobagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. I am sure he had a wry grin on his face. You are very religious. He could have found a thousand reasons to knock them down. He gave them one thing that they could agree with. There wasn't one of them in the whole place that could say, oh no, we're not religious. Of course we're religious. Look, our whole town is stuffed full of idols. What does he then do? He picks on this one anomaly to them, this, this conundrum, this, this idol to the unknown God. All they were doing with it was hedging their bets. We made all these idols and temples to all these other gods. In case we've missed one out along the way, let's make this one and then we'll keep that one happy too. It was a nothing. It didn't really mean anything to them. But I'm sure it was a a subjective debate like anything else was. And so when Paul says, now I'm going to tell you about this unknown God, they're all on the edge of their seats waiting to hear what he's going to say. Do you see what he's done? He's given them a reason to listen to the gospel. If I had more time, we'd critique his sermon, which is unusual to say the least. I dare say that if somebody came to my church and preached the way Paul preaches here, not managing to fit a single word of scripture into the entirety of it, I'd think twice about inviting him back. If you look through the text of it, there's no scripture. He doesn't quote scripture. What he does quote is pagan poetry. It's um, Epimenides, I think, that he quotes, and I can't remember, artists or somebody, I can't remember the the names of them. But but he's got a sermon that basically has no scripture in it and relies on, on quotations from their own pagan poets. And yet, as you stand back from it and look at the whole of the sermon, he tells them that they are created beings. 
who have offended their creator. Their creator has, has given them a window of opportunity, a time of forbearance, but now is commanding them to repent. He actually preaches the gospel to them in its glorious whole without actually using a single word of scripture. I'm not recommending to you that you attempt to do that. I certainly would never attempt to do that. But for the Apostle Paul, full of the Holy Spirit as he was, at a unique time, it was obviously what God led him to do. And what was the outcome? Verse 32, some mocked. Don't be put off when you preach the gospel and people mock. It's a healthy response. It means you're doing it right. Some procrastinate. We'll hear you again on this. It seems to be the way, doesn't it? People don't want to make a decision today. I'd rather think about it later or tomorrow. When I've lived the life I want, then perhaps I'll think about this God of yours. But some, and this is the joy, isn't it? Some joined him and believed. At all kinds of ranks, even an Aropagite, Dionysius, one of these bigwig philosophers, is persuaded by the power of the gospel to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is amazing, isn't it? So, how do we get from there to here? Let me show you this. I don't know if it's big enough for you to be able to see from the back, but you can come up and have a look afterwards. This is us in Kirby Town Centre. This picture is actually from 2011, the first year that we, we ever did Passion for Kirby. What we did was we turned up in the town centre for a week. We enticed the people in with burgers of the highest quality, not cheap burgers, I mean really good quality burgers and uh, good quality uh, musicians uh, and, and so on. And then from this stage, we preached the gospel to these people of Kirby. We preached the Lord Jesus Christ in clear, unambiguous terms. And we were doing it on their turf, speaking to them in their own terms. It was a relaxed environment where the barriers were down. We weren't trying to funnel them into a church-shaped building that they'd never been through in their lives. We were inviting them to come and sit in the town centre on a nice warm sunny day with a cup of tea or coffee or orange juice or whatever and have a burger, listen to the people on the stage talking about their lives transformed by Christ and maybe have somebody sit at the table share with them too. And as part of this we had a, a giveaway for them too which was a, a tract that we, we wrote specially for the occasion. Um, let me just put this down here. Called A Passion for Kirby. We were using a Passion for Life model. And what we did was, we used our knowledge of Kirby. We're Kirby people. We live there. I'm, I'm an income. You've got to live there 25 years before you're allowed to say you actually come from Kirby. I've only been there 12 years, so I'm halfway. But what I've tried to do is, is use my time there to get to know the people of Kirby and understand what matters to them. What keeps them awake at night? What gets them out of bed in the morning? And I found a very sort of simple summary. Not glib, not trite. I think it's a fair representation. We, we found that the things that matter to the people of Kirby are faith, because Kirby's packed full of churches, mostly Roman Catholic, admittedly, because it's a 95% Roman Catholic area. So, so faith is important to people of Kirby. Football is very important. Red or blue, you have to be one or the other. And then the other um, is family. It's a very family-oriented town. The, the clearances, post-war clearances of the slums came down. They moved families out into houses in, in the same street. And even to this day, 50, 60 years later, families live in the same street. So, so Joe will live here and his mum lives up at the top and his aunt lives over the road. And people stay in Kirby because their family live in Kirby. So those are the things that matter. So what we do is we put all of that into a, into a tract. 
um, about uh, uh, all these things. Um, faith, family and football. We looked at them, how good they are, what the weaknesses are. And then we matched them to the gospel to see how do they stack up against the word of God and what God says matters in life. So that was our, our giveaway. I've brought a load of these with me. Just so you can have one um, and take it away. It wouldn't work for you because this isn't Kirby, as you well know. But if you want to have a look at one and just see, it might give you some ideas as to the kind of thing you could do. If you do want to do one and want some help, I'd obviously be delighted to help you with the mechanics of it. And I can help you with printing and some of those. So that's a slightly separate thing. But, but before we finish, I just want to bring you back to this for a bit of a, a sort of somber note in a sense. And then I want to finish with something very joyful. So here we are. We're on their turf. We're speaking to them in terms they can understand. And in 2011, according to the council um, and their foot-watching system that, that records the, the density of bodies through the square, about 31,000 people passed through the square in the week while we were there. We didn't measure it that way. We measured it as in, if we had a conversation with somebody, and from that conversation we gave them something to take away, we didn't do shotgun tracting, so we didn't stand there handing out tracts. You had to sit and talk to somebody. You had to have a conversation, and at the end of the conversation, you had to offer this tract to be taken away. We gave away 7,000 tracts in the week. So we, we believe, honestly, before the Lord, that in that first week, our little church of 12 people was enabled by the Lord with help that he sent in to reach 7,000 people. We have scaled it down slightly since then. We've tweaked it for various reasons. But, but, but usually our routine year is that we would engage meaningfully about 5,000 people each year. And we're still just a small church, yeah? So it's not that we've become a mega church. It's an expensive business to do this. Uh, and if we had more time, I could give you a thousand stories of God's kindness. But let me give you just one. When we first costed this out for our first year, it is a big venture. There's bouncy castles, there's a football cage, there's a gyro chair, there's a, a barbecue. We, we opted for great quality, everything, even the coffee's great quality. You know, the, the ketchup, it's Heinz ketchup, not economic. Everything was, we wanted people to stop dead in their tracks and say, why are you doing this so well? Why are you giving us this good stuff? They're used to getting free stuff in Kerber. There's plenty of free stuff to be had. But there's normally that begrudging attitude and you get the economy version. We gave them the best we could possibly give them with the best attitude and heart. And the Lord blessed that approach so much. The number of people that said, why do you do this so well? Why do you give us these great burgers? Why have we got Dow Egbert's coffee instead of, you know, whatever? It works, it does. So there we are, meet, meeting them, preaching the gospel to them, and they flow in and they flow out. This is a big picture that we had, just to remind us as a church of God's goodness to us. That's my lovely wife Janet there, and this guy here, that's Roger Carswell, he's an evangelist, some of you might have heard of, and that's my lovely little, my youngest daughter Rebecca there. So there we are, and, and the Lord blessed. But I just want to mention a couple of lads here, you might see them here, these two in blue. There's a brunette lad here and a, and a blonde lad here. Scott and Jamie are the two of them. Scott, we, we kind of know quite well, and he periodically pops into our church, and, and, and he kept telling me, oh, take that picture down, take that picture down. And I just presumed, of course, it was, he was a bit embarrassed at seeing his picture up, he didn't want it to be on the wall. But one time, when he came in, I said, look, what is, what's your problem with this picture? It's a good photo. He said, oh, it's not me, it's Jamie. I said, what's the problem? He said, oh, well, he's dead now. See, what we didn't know, obviously, about this little lad there, the blonde lad, was that he had leukemia. And... Um, Try as they might, his parents couldn't find that treatment that would do the job. He'd had every treatment going. They told him, they promised him that they were searching for what it was that he needed and they would do their best. But this uh, week was about, I think certainly within a month of him passing away, 
But Scott told us that in that week, Jamie made him come every day. He said to him, my mum and dad are searching for what I need, but I found it here. We don't know how many equivalents of that there were in that crowd, but the Lord knows, doesn't he? Um, It's a privileged opportunity to be allowed to um, share the good news of Jesus in those circumstances. But I want to end on a very happy note, a cheerful and a joyful note, which I'm going to do by introducing my friend Ken to come up and talk to me. Ken, come here. (laughs) Evening, Ken. How is he going to do... For, well, is this mic on? Is this working? Come, come closer into this microphone. Now, Ken, on a summer's day in August 2011, where did you happen to find yourself? I was in the town centre um, on the very first fashion for Kirby. Yes, uh, right. And our man, Pastor Roger, was, um, was preaching. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I was a bit curious, and I wonder, what gives over here? So I went over, I heard him preaching, and I... Uh, Inside, I was anticipating him to taking a break and to sit down so I could ask him something. When he sat down, I said, uh, what's your name? He said, uh, Roger. I said, what's your dad's name? He said, Eddie. I said, listen, uh, could you explain Jesus' personal look for me? At the shop, at the time I was shopping, there was a white bag, and he said, uh, imagine... In this bag was every filthy sin you've ever committed, the sin you're going to commit, and the sin you are committing. And Jesus came along there and said, I'll take this, and I'll die for Kenneth Bernard. And as soon as I heard that, something happened in my heart. And I said to him, Pastor Roger, son of Eddie, you are a happy man because the seed you have sown has turned me upside down and I had to sit down and uh, compose myself and I saw myself for where I was when I got home I wept like a baby and I, it was immediate and on the spot repentance and God forgive me in the past Thank you, Ken. I'll let, you, I'll let you sit down, yeah. Ken struggles a little bit with his nerves sometimes, so I don't want him to... Try not to yeah, make it. Go on, you, you sit down. It took Ken a year to find us after that, so it wasn't an immediate thing, was it? But a year later, we did actually manage to run into each other by God's grace. Uh, and you were baptised shortly after that, weren't you? Our first baptism for 12 years. And he continues to grow in grace and truth. And the Lord uses him to rebuke us and to encourage us. Because <laughs> uh, he keeps reading this stuff in the Bible and say, hey, come on a minute. He says we should be doing this. Why aren't we? And it's hard to say why you're not, isn't it? It's a, it's a good rebuke. So here's a living witness before you. This is a new creature in Christ. Uh, we've not encouraged Ken to become a, a suit-wearing, tie-wearing person. We want him to be the Ken that God made him to be. And, and, and his ability to connect with the people of Kirby... it's a million years beyond mine because he was born in Kirby everybody knows him that's why his story is in the tract as part of the testimony Uh, and we praise God for for adding to us a passionate evangelist Ken, without getting back up here why are you so passionate about telling people about Jesus? just shout out loud because I 
Isn't that a great agenda? He doesn't want one soul to go to hell. Is that your agenda? It's not a bad agenda to have, is it? I think I've used too much time. I've probably used too much time for the last hymn. Shall I just close in prayer? Heavenly Father, help us to fulfill the Great Commission and to be evangelists. Lord, we're timid. We're frightened. Uh, we, We just don't know where to begin. But thank you, Lord, that you are so gracious. And if we would just trust you, you'd give us the right words at the right time. So, Lord, perhaps in the week ahead, by your grace, give us an opportunity to share the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us the words and give us the joy of seeing the gospel at work, which is the power of God unto salvation. And Lord, I pray specifically for this fun day in the car park on the 26th. Lord, make it an amazing, wonderful, fabulous opportunity. And Lord, may it be a day where sinners come to know. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not join us in worship at the Dingle Mount Church or log on to our website at www.dinglemount.org for more information. Thank you for listening.